Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 20. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Isaiah tells us that to this one you will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at your word. And Father, um, I feel my heart trembling this morning at your word. I want to honor your word this morning. Help me, Father. Help us lean in and have ears to hear. I pray that you would fill us afresh with your spirit and come and move in our hearts. And that by the miracle of your grace, you would form Christ in us. Do that work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In August of 1973, uh, a fellow by the name of Jan Eric Olson took four bank employees hostage um, during a failed bank robbery attempt in uh, Stockholm, Sweden. And... Uh, he held these hostages for six days in a bank vault with him until finally they were released and Jan Eric was taken into custody. The strange thing is about this story, however, that even uh, during the trial, none of those hostages would uh, testify against Jan Eric in court. In fact, they even went so far as to raise money for his legal defense, if you can believe it. 
This is, this is odd. This is strange. This is unusual. And it was so strange and unusual that a Swedish psychiatrist by the name of, and I'm sure I'll get this wrong, Nils Bergeron, I, that's my best, um, he came up with a name for this condition. It's called Stockholm Syndrome. Now, the passage that we're looking at this morning in Galatians 4, 8 to 20, Paul seems to be dealing with what we might call spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. Thought that would get a laugh. Um, however, in this situation, really, this, it's, it's, it's even much worse because these freed hostages, in fact, don't want to be free. They want to go back into the bank vault in order to be held captive. Now, obviously, spiritual Stockholm syndrome is not a thing. I just use that to illustrate the point. But it does capture something of the idea of what Paul is talking about here in verse 9, where he says, How can you turn back again to the weak and the worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once again? In the passage that Emmalina just read for us, the Apostle Paul is deeply troubled. He's deeply perplexed for these Christians because what they want to do, as I said last week, they want to... They want to do this strange thing. They want to legalize the gospel. I'll explain what that means. In this case, specifically, they want to add observance to the Mosaic law to their faith in Jesus Christ in order to make them right with God. And that is the equivalent of legalizing the gospel. Paul argues here and last week, that is slavery, that is bondage. I have three points to make from this text this morning. First, Paul's pastoral goal. Second, Paul's pastoral concern. And third, Paul's pastoral plea. I want to begin by looking at verse 19. Paul writes, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. That, right there at the end of that verse, that is Paul's pastoral goal. He is, he is in anguish. He is longing, painfully longing for these people to whom he is writing until he can see the evidence in their lives that Christ is really being formed in their lives. Now that isn't really just Paul's goal for these particular believers. This needs to be the goal that every pastor should have for everyone in the church. This is my goal for you, not just this morning. This is my goal all the time for all of you. 
I pray continually that God, through the ministry of the gospel and through the working of the Spirit, would form Christ in us. That is the pastoral goal. Paul, this, this idea isn't always stated exactly the same way. It, it's elsewhere in Paul's writings. He uses slightly different terminology. For example, in uh, Romans 8.29, he writes about those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, here it is, to be conformed to the image of his Son, to be conformed to the image of Christ. And in Colossians 1, verses 28 and 29, he writes, Him, meaning Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, here's the goal, that, or in order that, we may present everyone mature or complete in Christ. That's the goal. And in verse 29, he says, It's for this goal that I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. See, this, the goal of pastoral ministry in general and the goal of the ministry of the gospel in particular is to see Christ formed in people's lives. It's to help believers mature in Christ or become more complete in Christ or to be conformed to the image of Christ. However you want to put it, this is the goal. Any other goal is pastorally unfaithful. Therefore, our goal at Christ City is not merely to grow numerically or teach the Bible, or help people through life's challenges. Our goal is not merely to build a a friendly, welcoming community, which we are. I love this community. I love how welcoming it is. I am blessed beyond imagining. Last week at the AGM, I bragged all over you guys. But that's not our goal. See, those, those things are great and wonderful and good only insofar as they serve the ultimate goal of helping to form Christ in our lives. Do you see the relationship? They're a means to accomplishing the great goal of Christ being conformed in us, of us maturing in him, of us being transformed into Christ's image. That's the reason we do what we do. That's the target we're aiming at. That's why we share the gospel with our non-Christian friends and our our non-Christian co-workers. That is why we gather each week for worship, word, and sacrament. And that is why we meet throughout the week in community groups. So lock that into your minds and pray to that end that God would do that work in you and in me and in each one of us. See, because it's only when that's happening, it's only as Christ is, is, is really shaping us from the inside out that, that really we're going to be able to, to 
honor and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Because we will only honor our Father when we look more and more like His Son. And so, what does this look like? How can we detect whether Christ is or is not being formed in us? That might seem a little mystical, a little nebulous. Well, it really isn't because Paul tells us over in Galatians 5 of the things that we should look for in order to be able to discern if Christ is taking shape in our lives. In Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, he says that the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ who is in us, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. That's the evidence. This is, this is the evidence that Christ is being formed in us when we bear the fruit of the Spirit of Christ. So let me ask you this morning. Are you aware that Christ is being formed in your life? Are you aware that from the inside out, through faith in Christ, the Spirit of God is transforming you more and more into the image of Christ? These are important questions. Or, or are we merely just putting on a show? Are we putting on appearances and managing our behavior whenever we happen to get in the midst of a group of Christians. Now, with that goal in mind, that's Paul's pastoral goal, with that in mind of being conformed or being Christ being formed in us, with that firmly in our minds, what I want to do now is turn to look at Paul's pastoral concern. See, Paul lays his concern out for us in verses 8 and 9. Listen carefully. He says, formerly, before, when you did not know God, we looked at this last week, he says, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. They were enslaved, they were in bondage to idols. But now, he says in verse 9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and the worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? It's spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. Now, in order to understand, I've already alluded to this, but in order to understand what he's saying, let's just zoom out for a second and recall what's going on here in the churches of Galatia. In a nutshell... False teachers have come in to the churches. They're making their rounds throughout the churches. And they're teaching. Here's what they're teaching. They're teaching that faith alone in Christ alone is not enough to make us right in the sight of God. It's not enough for God to accept us. These teachers are saying that we need to supplement our faith in Christ with obedience 
to the laws of Moses. And Paul says that that is just like returning to pagan idolatry and spiritual bondage. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again? See, by adding this idea of law-keeping to our faith in Christ, by welding them together in order to be right with God, these, these Christians were squandering their spiritual inheritance as God's beloved children. They were moving from sonship that we looked at last week right back into slavery. I, I love this this language in verse 8. Because if we flip it around, we think about what he's saying about the gospel here. He's saying that to believe on Christ is to know God. Just saying that. Let that hit you. Let that land on you. that, That we, through our faith in Jesus Christ, have come to know God. Not, not know theological truths about God. No, we have come to know God personally. I think that's got to be one of the most amazing things that any human being can ever know. See, it's one thing to know about a famous person like the queen, for example. But it's quite another thing for the queen herself to come to you and personally invite you to come and live in Buckingham Palace with me and I want you to share afternoon tea every day and I really want you to get to know me. I'm sorry, Kat, I know that was awful. (laughs) It's a different thing entirely. The first is information. Second is relationship. The gospel of Jesus Christ, my friends, it's it's not remembering a set of theological um, propositions that we can, you know, rattle off to someone when it's our time to share the gospel. That's not what we're about. The gospel of Jesus Christ is, is, if you like, a gateway that opens us up into the very presence of the living, infinite, triune, personal, creator, sovereign Lord of the universe. Now, all you guys should be just on the floor right now. That's what Jesus said the gospel is. That's what Jesus told us. He says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one can come to the Father except through me. See, we've come to the Father through Jesus Christ. It's glorious good news. 
We don't get there by adding obedience to the laws of Moses. We believe, we believe in Christ alone. He is the door. He takes us right up into, and if you will, He picks us up and He puts us right in the Father's lap. And the Father whispers in our ear, I love you. And I will never let you go. Consider what Paul or what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18. I love this. He says that Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's you and me. But why did he do it? Well, Peter tells us, in order that he might bring us to God. There it is again, in the Father's lap, enjoying the Father. Consider what Paul says in Ephesians 2.18. This is one of my favorites. Through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, I could multiply texts that talk this way. But wait, there's even more. It's like one of those infomercials. Paul clarifies what it means to know God by saying, or rather, to be known by God. So consider this for a second this morning. Why do any of us know God? Well, Paul's answer Because we are known by God. See, we know Him because He first knew us. He initiated the relationship. Imagine it. I could stand outside and shake the gates of Buckingham Palace all day long. And one of those guys in the big bear hats is probably just going to come up and remove me. Or a bobby will come and take me away. The queen is not coming out. If you and I are going to have a relationship with the queen, she's going to have to initiate. She's going to have to come to us and say what I said before in a silly English accent. We don't dictate the terms of that relationship. And just like that with with us and God, we know him because he first knew us. I Let this hit you. Ephesians 1, 4 says that he, that is God, chose us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world. Before you and I even existed, he knew us. There's mystery here, but it's mind-blowing. So here's the thing. These Christians to whom Paul is writing... They weren't pressing in. And this is a word for us. They weren't pressing in to know God more and more. They weren't pressing in to their relationship with the Father as His beloved children. These guys were going backward. They were going backward into ignorance. It's as if, Paul says, you didn't even know God. See, they were tempted... This is what's going on here. They're tempted to think that God is somehow appeased 
by their obedience, by their good works, that somehow this will win them favor with God. And that is contrary to the gospel. Rather than simply knowing God and enjoying God and in the presence of God, being conformed more into the image of Christ, they embrace spiritual bondage. Paul presents the evidence for this flawed way of thinking about God in verse 10. In effect, he says, look at what you guys are doing. You observe days and months and seasons and years. See, these people, Paul is saying, these people are living as if Christ has never even come into the world to save us from our sins. They're focusing on following the rules and the rituals laid down, all 613 of them, in the Mosaic Law, while they're completely overlooking the one who fulfilled the law completely for us and the one to whom the entire Old Testament bears witness and points forward to, namely Jesus Christ. Ritual can never replace relationship. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a relational guy. Ritual kills Christian vitality and reality. You can't reduce your relationship with the triune personal God of the universe who sacrificed his son for our sins by, by turning it into a bunch of robotic behaviors that we go through the lists and we fulfill. It can't be done. But how often are we tempted to overlook? Overlook the access to God himself that we have through Jesus Christ. And we tend to think of God as someone who's somehow going to be more favorable to us if we just step up our our spiritual game. Instead of seeing and, and savoring the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we begin, and it happens so subtly, doesn't it? We begin by focusing on our church attendance or our faithfulness in our Bible reading or our prayer life or our theological orthodoxy or our spiritual journaling or our sacrificial giving. Or maybe it's our worship experience. And let me just say, all of those things are good, but it's a bit like, it's a bit like focusing our attention on a window instead of looking through it to enjoy the awesome view it opens up for us. Now, at this point, I could imagine somebody, a very pragmatic-minded person, might say, what's the big deal, Fred? What's all the fuss about? As long as somebody lives a good life, it doesn't really matter, right? Wrong. It really matters. Look at what Paul says about this in verse 11. This is tragic. He says, I am afraid... I may have labored over you in vain. I am afraid, I am troubled, he says, that all the energy, all the effort, 
all the prayers, all the preparation, all the toil, all the time, everything I've invested in these people is going to be entirely wasted, futile. Instead of seeing these people mature into the fullness of Christ as God's beloved children, he sees them slipping back into a form of spiritual ignorance and bondage, and it's breaking his heart. That leads us finally to Paul's pastoral plea. In verses 12 to 14, Paul writes, Brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. See, here Paul is leaning over the pulpit or And he's getting very personal. He's making eye contact. And he's drawing upon the shared history that he has with these people in order to win them back to faith alone, in Christ alone, in order to make us right with God. That is the message of Galatians. And he is is desperate to wean them back off of the influence of these false teachers. He says, follow my example. I am free from the law. Follow my example. Don't put the the law onto your shoulders as a burden that you cannot bear. It will crush you. Follow my freedom. And then he says, Even though I was a a Jew, I'm a Jew. He says, I became a Gentile in order to reach you Gentiles. It's called contextualization. Now, Paul goes on here. We don't know the specifics here. It's like listening to a telephone call between two people that have a relationship. And you're kind of saying, well, what what are they talking about? But there's things assumed here. And so we don't know the details. But Paul here recalls that when he was first with them, he suffered from this bodily ailment of some kind. People suggest maybe it was malaria that he got when he was down near the Mediterranean. Now he's moved up into the plateau, get away from the... The swampland, I don't know. That's just speculation. And commentators say that's just speculation. But he says that although this illness was indeed a trial for them when he was first with them, he says, you didn't, you didn't scorn me. You didn't despise me. Now, that sounds strange to us because I think for the most part we tend to we tend to move toward and be compassionate with people who are in some sort of pain. But in this culture, it was highly likely that to be ill was to be seen as somehow unfavored by God or maybe even afflicted by the demons. And so there would have been maybe a a religious overtone to this. And Paul says, you didn't scorn me. You didn't despise me. You didn't reject me. Rather, he says, you received me as an angel of God. 
even as Christ Jesus himself. Now, apparently the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, was so at work and present through Paul's preaching to these people in Galatia that that they immediately recognized They were struck by the authority of Paul's ministry and particularly the authority of Paul's message. When he preached Christ, it was like an E.F. Hutton commercial. Everybody listened. Now, like two people got that. Stephen got that. Check off E.F. Hutton. They paid attention. They leaned in. They recognized the authority of his message message. And Jesus said that that might happen. See, in Matthew 10, verse 40, Jesus told his disciples, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me, even God the Father. But that was then, and this is now. Look at verses 15 and 16. Paul's heart must be heavy when he writes this. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That's just bizarre. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? See, when Paul was with them preaching the gospel and they received him as an angel of God, They were so blessed. They were so blessed when they put their faith in Christ that they were prepared to give him anything, even their own eyeballs. That's hyperbole. But now it seems they've forgotten that blessing. It's it's ancient history. They've forgotten it. And in fact, Paul suggests that they're treating him even as an enemy. Why? Why? Because he's telling them the truth. Now, I'm not an apostle. But let me say this. Pastoral ministry. What what you have called me to in shepherding this church. It's not about, it's not about people pleasing. It's not about people pleasing at all. It's not about always telling people, it's not about always telling you what you want to hear. Doug is laughing because he's been on the other end of this. See, pastoral ministry is telling people the truth. And even sometimes when they don't want to hear it. I... uh, I would say it was about 10 or 11 years ago where I was asked to do some marriage counseling or some pre-marriage counseling, excuse me. And this, uh, this gal had come to me and said, would you, would you please you know, help us to go through the pre-marriage process and we, we'd like you to conduct the wedding. And so I said, great. So I started meeting with her and her fiancé and it became pretty evident Uh, I would say within the first meeting, but, you know, benefit of the doubt, I gave it two meetings. And it was becoming pretty evident 
pretty clear, pretty obvious that this fellow really did not have a solid saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now you can see where this is going, right? So I asked, can we get a coffee? And I, I met with this guy who was, who was, had been in the church for a while and the other fellow had come in later on. And uh, I said, you know, here's my concern. And initially she was quite responsive. Until, uh, I guess she met with her fiance and they started talking. And just like these false teachers, he turned her thinking entirely away and I became their enemy. Um, I won't go into the details, but they left the church and uh, rolled in a few hand grenades on the way out. And that was very pleasant. And, you know, you pick yourself up and you dust yourself off and you, you go on. And a number of years later, um, in fact, in a very difficult situation, I was, I was, I'd been at a friend's place. His, his wife, his 34-year-old wife had just died. And... Um, she died very late in the evening and it was early the next morning and I was with them and uh, one of the nurses that came to remove my friend's wife's body um, was this lady who had left the church. And she was very professional and did everything she was, was needed to do. And after uh, all the attendants had taken my friend's wife's body away. She pulled me aside for a moment. She looked me right in the eyes and she said, I wish I had listened to you. She was weeping and she said, I wish I had listened to you. She said, our, our marriage ended a few years ago. It was great for about a year. And then some of the things that you had pointed out to me started to, to manifest and, and cause real trouble. This is serious, serious business. We're not here to entertain, not here to please. Although I do want you to know the pleasures forevermore in being deeply conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And I will labor over this work for your good, even if sometimes it might seem as though I'm against you. I talk to my kids all the time. I say, I know you think I'm against you, but I'm against you for you. And I'm, I'm against you. If I'm ever against you, I promise you it's for you. I promise you. Paul says in Galatians 1.10, he says, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, pastors who play the game of pleasing people, have betrayed their calling to serve Jesus Christ. And they are a plague upon the church. And yes, I get a little upset about that. Paul says finally in verses 17 to 20, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is a good thing to be made much of for a good purpose 
And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. See, here's the thing. False teachers, they don't, they don't come advertising, hey, false teacher. Ah, here's my business card. False teacher. That's not, that's not the way they... Here's what they do. They, they come in among and they schmooze and they glad hand and they backslap. It's all friends and smiles and rainbows and unicorns. But Paul says these guys are, are, are full of flattery. See, they stroke people's egos because they want people to stroke their ego. And ultimately, what Paul says they're doing is they're shutting people out of the freedom that they have through faith in Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his reigning at the right hand of God for us to bring us into God's own presence. He says, all of that is shut out to you if you go with these false teachers. It is painful, I have to admit. Pastoral ministry is glorious. I love it. I would do it. If I was independently wealthy, I would be in pastoral ministry. (laughs) My kids. (laughs) But let me say this. It It is painful in a way that I can't really describe. It is painful to watch people you love and you care for just sort of wandering off into error as you as you yell behind them. Don't come back. Remember Jesus. Paul says he's in the anguish of childbirth. It's kind of a graphic image. It's heart-wrenching when people seek to serve, you're seeking to serve, ignore what Christ has done for them and embrace lies and, and, and move back into the bondage of sin. They, they love the lie more than they love the Savior. painful to see people resist the working of the Spirit through faith in the Word, the working of the Spirit to form Christ in them. It's painful. And so as we close, can I please appeal to you to seek that work in you by the Spirit, through the Word, pray to this end that Christ would be formed in us and that we would cooperate together even sometimes when it's difficult to aim for this glorious goal because any other route shuts us out ultimately out of the fullness and of the freedom and the pleasures forevermore that are at the right hand of God himself in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you help us as a people to humbly embrace your word and through it to, to taste and see that you are good. You are, you are better than whatever other agendas or paths or programs or plans we might try and set out for ourselves. And Lord, I pray that uh, we, we would be a, a correctable people We'd be an accountable people. 
and we would embrace not our own authority, but the authority of Christ speaking through his word to us. Do you do that? That work in our hearts and, and just make us more and more and more and more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.